All right, new episode. Um, I have Marta Zaraska on the show uh, on this episode, and it's a it's a it's a great episode. It's a great topic. Marta has written a book about longevity. Uh, it's called Growing Young: How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to a Hundred. Love the topic. Love the conversation. Marta's great. Uh, I don't think. Uh, shall we say, I think there's some room for improvement in my interviewing skills, <laughs> having reviewed the episode. Uh, there were a couple times that I, like, blanked out on questions, even though I had, like, some really good questions I hadn't asked yet, like, written down right in front of me. Uh, I woke up early. I think my caffeine meter was a little low or something. Uh, so you might notice <laughs> there's a few moments where I, uh, I may not be at my strongest, but the episode turned out well overall, actually. Uh, that's because um, it is such a fascinating topic, and we had a great discussion about it. Uh, I I first started hearing about this a few years ago. I think it was initially in the context of religious people, and they'd done studies on religious people wondering why certain religious groups lived longer than average. And uh, the researchers had... had concluded that the reason is because religious people have a higher degree of social activity and so i thought oh that's interesting yeah and then i kind of wondered if well, does it apply to non-religious people as well and it does and these studies have been done um you know numerous times over over the last few decades and the evidence is very very clear that uh, the biggest predictor of uh, someone living long and healthy life is the quality of your social relationships. So what fascinates me about this story and about Marta's book is that, you know, although the science is very clear on the one hand, on the other hand, that's not how most people think about longevity, right? Most people think about longevity as um, you're trying to change their biochemistry in some way either by eating certain foods or by um taking nutritional supplements or by exercising right somehow to change your biochemistry uh in an easy way that um and you know, the evidence is pretty clear that most of the things don't work diet and exercise are good but actually, social interaction is even better. So we don't think of things that way normally. And that gap between what the science is saying and what we people believe and what they practice in their everyday life is just actually pretty huge. Uh, and so it's it's an interesting, an interesting topic from a like a personal perspective because this is something that you can use in your everyday life. Right. I mean, you can actually make decisions saying I want to prioritize my social relationships over uh, other things in my life. And that will have a healthy, direct benefit for you. But it's also a very interesting story from a, um, a science communication standpoint. Right. Because there, there's it's clear that there's an element of, uh, I don't know, almost a denialism. Uh in the nutritional supplements story, it is 
one area where I, this is this is really clear. Like I've known for years that supplements don't work. Basically, I mean, there's there's a couple of cases. Okay, maybe for deficient in something, maybe, but but for the most part, supplements don't really provide much of a benefit. I still take supplements for some reason, right? And and millions of other people around the world do. Uh, despite having all the evidence available to them and and you know we kind of convince ourselves that these things work when we know they don't and we ignore the evidence that um to the contrary and so that's just a fascinating uh aspect to this as well and i know that uh, marta mentions that uh you know there's a commercial interest in sort of perpetuating those beliefs and that's probably a good explanation you know i mean that that's also another reason uh, you know, that's why uh, global warming science took so long to to permeate throughout the public because there were commercial interests um, at stake there as well. So, I don't know, it's just fascinating all around. and It, it, it was a great conversation. Uh, I do think that I need to work on, on my interviewing because, you know, there are just certain moments when I thought, wow, there's a great question here, and I didn't, you know, I just didn't pick it up. And, uh, you know. Um, but, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, listen listen to the show i think it's a good episode and pick up marta's book uh growing young how friendship optimism and kindness can help you live to 100 all right and here is marta zaraska all right i'm here with marta zaraska a science journalist who i think has written a very important book about probably the most important question uh one of the most important questions that we deal with in our lives which is how do we make our lives last longer um i'm kind of a science-based person i'm assuming you probably share my belief that life is uh limited in the sense that it's uh, there is no afterlife right um and as life is very limited i mean how how we can make it last as long as we can is kind of important there's a big difference between living to 60 and living to 90. um and you've done um, investigative research into what science is now telling us about how we can make that happen. So, oh, what's the secret? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first of all, I wanted to, I would like to clarify something. So often when people hear, you know, the title of my book, which is, you know, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism and Kindness Can Help Us Live to a Hundred, they fixate on this hundred and they tell me, I don't want to live to a hundred. And this is, I think, a very common misconception. So people often think, you know, that if you live long, this means you will be sick for a very long time, very, you know, frail for a very long time. Uh, but actually, the opposite tends to be true. So uh, in research shows, for instance, that a typical person who lives to be 80 or so, so the usual average, uh, will spend 18% of their time on Earth ridden by disease. Whereas for super centenarians, so those people who live 110 and plus, it's just 5%. And one out of 10 of those super centenarians actually escapes disease until three very last months of life. So they are, you know, you live until 110 and you are only infirm for about three months. Because the truth is that generally the healthier we are, the longer we live. That kind of sounds obvious, but on the other hand, you know, people often think of 100-year-olds as kind of sick and being, you know, sick for a long time. Fairly. But we, the healthier we stay, the long, longer, the longer we'll live as well. And the people who are generally in poor health, 
they stay in poor health longer and they die younger as well. And of course, you will always hear a story of someone's grandma who, you know, lived to 100 and uh, spent the last three decades in bed. But um, but it's the on, in the same kind of type of stories as my grandpa smoked two packs a day of cigarettes and right. he never had cancer, right? So it always right. happens, but it's not the common path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not just about... So in order to live long... Um, live well and be healthy. Yeah, these things go together. So being healthy, staying healthy also means in general living longer. Yeah, okay. But here, here's where I think um, people might be surprised by the results of your book. When we think of staying healthy, the things that we usually think about, I mean, everyone that I know and me for most of my life is eating well, uh, diet, exercise, maintaining a healthy weight, and maybe some supplements or something. I mean, supplements are a huge craze. I take supplements, although I probably shouldn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That is not in your uh, view or in science's view, I should say, because you're just documenting science's view. That is actually not the biggest um, factor in, in maintaining our health and thus living a long life. I mean, definitely not supplements. And when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to diet and exercise, they are important, right? So I never said diet and exercise are not important. Sure. But we are missing a really big part of the story here when we fixate so much on diet and exercise. And that part of the story is something I call the soft drivers of health. So things exactly like friendship optimism, kindness, uh, whether you're conscientious, for example, mindfulness, uh, volunteering, things like that, which actually when you add all of this together, uh, it can lower your mortality risk uh, by as much as 65%. And to compare, for example, a healthy diet, for example, the Mediterranean diets, uh, so like the golden standard of good eating, can lower your mortality risk by about 21%, whereas exercise is somewhere between 20 and 30%. So, you know, you had 65% there and you have 20 to 30% here. So you can see really uh, how important it is to be social and, you know, find purpose in life, stay optimistic, all these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that, that's an amazing statistic. And I think... Um... It's astounding. I know there's lots of research to back it up, but it still is just astounding to hear uh, that, I mean, there's something else out there that helps us live longer and healthier. And we don't, and we generally don't talk about that, right? We generally don't talk about our social relationships as being a part of our health, right? We don't have that kind of conversation as that's actually a part of um, our strategy to living a healthy life. But according According to the science, we actually should. We actually should be, that should be central. Now, not that diet and exercise aren't important, but our social, and building a social environment for ourselves that's healthy is actually even more important. I mean, I, I think that we don't talk about it for a very simple reason, and that reason is money. So, you know, when you think about things exactly like supplements or diets, some kind of dietary products, new miracle foods, uh, fad diets, or exercise gadgets, exercise apps, there is money involved, right? Sure. There is somebody trying to profit on it. There are plenty of companies out there, you know, making money on it. The supplement market is enormous, over $300 billion worldwide. So there is lots of money in it. Whereas in things like friendship, for example, or kindness uh, or optimism, there is no money there. You know, nobody's trying, nobody can really make 
any income on you taking a walk with your friends sure, or yeah. you being you know nice to people around you it's really there is no money there so that's why it doesn't make it to social media for example there are no influencers selling this kind of product yeah, there is no sure. there are no ads there is no marketing and this is why we don't really hear about it much yeah i mean that makes sense but that's that's still so it's that's just still strange that i get i mean we we in the west we live in these consumerist societies and it's so strange that so much of our our discourse has been sort of co-opted by that consumerism that we can't uh, we we can't even talk about these things right I mean we don't even we don't even hear them I mean I I heard about this through your work recently um, but I I I'm relatively well educated I read a lot I haven't I hadn't heard of it before um, and it's something that's really important it's something that actually can help help us live better lives um so let 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 me let me drill down on some of these soft drivers a little bit so you mentioned social relationships what what does that mean exactly like what kind of relationships should we be having if we want to be healthy um how many should we have uh how deep do they need to be i mean is it just we need to you know be friendly with our neighbors or is it you know, we need to be very, have a large number of very intimate relationships where we're able to talk about our emotions to, you know, 10, 12 different people. What, what do we need to, to be healthy and, and to live longer in terms of social I mean, relationships? I mean, scientists talk about something called social integration. And what they mean by this usually are several things. So several layers, you could say. So first of all, there is the romantic partnership, right? This is probably the most important uh, relationship in terms of your health. So usually in studies, it means marriage, but in general, it just means a romantic relationship that is committed. So you really are in it for for, for good or for bad. And uh, so this is the most important one. So, and then, then the next layer are your friendships. And by this, usually scientists mean intimate friendships. So that you have people in whom you can confide, on whom you can rely. You know, for example, that if you fall sick, they will they will help you. They will bring you soup, for instance, right? Um, and it doesn't really matter if you have just one very close friend like that, or you have five or even seven. Uh, it really depends on on the person as well. So some people need to have more friends to feel that they are connected, to feel that they have people around them. Whereas for an another person, just one intimate friend like that is enough. But consider that 25% of Americans don't have even a single friend like that. So if your number is zero, that's not good. But whether it's one or three or five or seven, that really depends on how you feel. And you can, you know, kind of can sense it yourself, whether your needs are being met. And then the third layer is the kind of wider circle. So for example, knowing your neighbors, being connected to your community, having, you know, colleagues that work with whom you chat, generally being, you know, some wider circle of friends and family. So generally being connected, knowing there are people around you. And the reason for that, you know, is that we have evolved like that. We are social apes, just like chimpanzees, for instance, when you think about them, you know, they live in a tribe. And this is how we evolved as well. And this is how our bodies function the best when we feel safe mm. within our tribe. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. Um, how mechanically does it work, though? Because we mm -hmm. evolved we evolved like that to be social, so that logic makes sense. But does this actually? I mean, does it lower our blood pressure? Does it 
Does it improve our mental health? Does it how mechanically does does it prevent heart attack? I and mean, what is what what is what are these relationships preventing physically in our bodies that keep us um, from dying? And um... I mean, there are plenty of interlinked effects here. So what I was really surprised to find in research when I started reading about all these things was how biological it is. How physiological you know when you when you talk about things like kindness and friendship it sounds kind of very new agey you know and but in fact is extremely extremely physiological so for instance we have social hormones these are hormones such as oxytocin serotonin vasopressin endorphins and these are hormones that link our social lives and our bodily functions uh, so for instance oxytocin is the hormone that is often called the love hormone and uh, this is something that you get for example from holding hands with another person or for looking deeply into their eyes directly into their eyes and um, and on the other hand this hormone also has very direct physiological effects for instance it uh, has anti-inflammatory properties it reduces pain it promotes bone growth uh, serotonin is very similar it also on one hand makes us feel connected to other people on another hand it regulates liver function for instance endorphins they make you feel more trusting and open towards other people but also uh prevents pain so there is you know the effects are you know on both ways right on your emotions and social connection but also directly on your physiology and there are other connections like this as well you have for example our fight or flight response or so-called hpa axis the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis which you know starts the it starts in your brain basically the response to stress uh and um in your hypothalamus and then your your body basically there's a cascade of hormones uh released in your body including things like cortisol for example the stress hormone and this axis also functions the best when we are surrounded by friendly others uh and as we know of course stress is a big Thing, cortisol as well you know cortisol is a big thing in many different uh, diseases that we suffer of today like in these days like cardiovascular disease for instance so so there are plenty of different connections you know there is also the gut bacteria that also connect how we function socially and how our bodies work so it's and it's all interlinked wow you say, so gut bacteria so you're saying the the bacteria that lives in our guts has uh... Wait, did they affect how we behave socially or does how we behave socially affects our, our bacteria? <laughs> it's both. Both those oh. statements are true. So on one hand, for example, we know that we exchange bacteria with other people. So when you hug other people, when you touch other people, you exchange bacteria of them. For instance, when you're playing contact sports, you swap uh, bacteria with the other team. You exchange gut bacteria with your family members, even with your family dog. And um, and then the more diverse your gut bacteria, the, the better in general is your health. But on the other hand, the gut bacteria also influence our emotions and our minds and how we may live our life socially. So it's all, you know, it's all really, really interconnected. That's amazing. That's amazing. that, that I mean, the human body is just a complicated system already. And then you add on like those those layers of, you know, the bacteria that lives in our intestines and they regulate our moods. And then we our social interactions regulate the bacteria that's just that's just so crazy that we're learning all this stuff um wow okay um we'll talk about romantic partners for a little bit like i mean i'm assuming that a bad marriage is bad for your health 
right? So uh, are all these studies sort of qualified with it, it's a positive marriage or a positive relationship or... So here's the weird thing. So for women, yes, only happy marriage is good for them. So um, happy marriage for women can mean less diabetes, uh, less inflammation, better response to viruses, even better teeth. But for men, actually, uh, it's not so obvious. So even a so-so marriage... Uh, can have benefits for men, and scientists were really, you know, uh, really curious about it. Why is it happening? Like it's kind of yeah. weird to think that a bad marriage could actually have some benefits for men. And the likely reason for that is that women tend to be the organizers of social lives. So in yes. a marriage, you know, they are more in touch with family. They yes. kind of organize the you know community, the neighbors, mm-hmm. and this is how men may still you know secondhand profit from a marriage that may not be good by itself, but may mean more social life. For men, uh, but of course, in general, for everybody, the better the marriage, the better the health outcomes. Sure, yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, men are pretty helpless. I gotta say, as a man, <laughs> men are pretty helpless in terms of organizing social things, especially when you get older. I mean, I would not want. I'm, I don't have a partner now, but I, I would not want to be in my seventies without a, a female partner to to keep me in check and to, to make sure I take my medication. And, that's another thing yes the, the nag factor is so cold yes yeah exactly and and to have people over to the house even though i don't really want people over just you know just so yeah, yeah that, okay that makes a lot of sense um so what what doesn't work because we, we mentioned that there is a huge this huge multi-billion dollar industry which i regrettably partake in um of all these supplements and all of these is, is it clear that none of those things work uh, i mean it depends. So here is the thing, you know, for example, if you have iron deficiency, then taking iron supplements sure. is definitely something you should be doing, right? So if your doctor prescribes something for particular health reasons, and of course it works, and of course it's good for you. But popping supplements the way many Americans do, just, you know, taking a multivitamin pill or just taking things just in case or because you read something on some in some Instagram post, uh, this is definitely not good for us. And in general, studies show that, for example, uh, taking multivitamin pill means higher mortality risk. So it doesn't actually prolong your life, it shortens it. Sure. The same, for example, for vitamin E that uh, you know, has been related to cancer mm-hmm. uh, and other vitamins as well. They're just popping them like this without any particular health reasons that your doctor has identified. Uh, this can actually lead to deterioration of health. Uh, and I'm not even talking about some other supplements, uh, that, like some kind of herbal supplements that haven't been really tested by anyone because that's the problem of supplements. And they also all interact with each other. You know, Supplements are active substances, active chemical substances, and just like prescription drugs, they interact with each other and causing potential very uh, nasty side effects. And there are, you know, so many over fifty thousand documented cases of of um, of uh, very serious side effects in U.S. every year because of exactly popping supplements uncontrolled, mixing things together, uh, and this can lead to real trouble. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised that actually, because I, I lived in Europe for, for a bit. I'm surprised that other countries don't have this cavalier attitude towards supplements that the United States does. I mean, we can go to a, a drugstore and get basically anything. 
um, any vitamin, mm. anything. In in France, I know you have to get a prescription to get vitamin D <laughs> because I tried to get a prescription for vitamin D. There. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, and and well, it's so some good reason. Like vitamin D is a hormone, and it's a very powerful. I mean, that's a. I mean, it, it, it comparable in effect to a to a drug, and some of these supplements are, and so they're they're very. They do seem very very dangerous, but mostly it, it it seems like the harm is just in the waste of money. Like it just seems like it's a lot of waste of money that people are just best, throwing yes. down the <laughs> throwing down the drain, and also not investing in the things that you're talking about, right? Not investing in in the social relate. I mean, there I'm sure there are a lot of people who just they they take pills thinking, okay, this this I've done my part for today. You know, I've taken my my five or six supplements, and okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stay healthy. I'm gonna live longer. Uh, because of that and then they sit and play video games all day and don't talk to their friends and you know it 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 probably gives a false sense of um doing something yeah. right like they're they're actually doing something to help their health when in fact they're they're not really i mean that's very likely you know even even for dieting i know personally some people who just pop a multivitamin pill per day and think they don't have to eat any fruits or vegetables anymore whereas <laughs> it's absolutely not correct right because we yeah. know that actually the not only vegetables and fruits contain other things like phytonutrients for instance that on top of vitamins and minerals but also the natural substances react together in a very different way than what you find in a pill so it's a completely different stuff that you get from an actual fruit or vegetable than you get in a pill but also of course there are those soft drivers of help i'm talking about you know exactly friendship kindness uh, optimism looking for purpose in life all these things that matter so much for our health and exactly if you just pop, pop a pill you may think you you know you've done your work and you don't really have to think about your life anymore which is a you know very easy reductionist approach but it just doesn't work sure yeah, yeah. well i mean because uh... All of this is, so, I mean, it's funny because all of this is so complicated, right? I mean, when you're talking about like, okay, I'm going to take a supplement and I'm going to put it into my body and the chemicals are going to react in a certain way, but it's even more complicated than that because as you mentioned, like um, the reason why fruits and vegetables are recommended isn't just because of their reductionist, you know, content of vitamins, it's because they have all sorts of other compounds that synergistically work together with the, with the, with the vitamins and the minerals that, that are in there. Um, but it's amazing how all of this complexity can kind of be reduced down into somewhat simple advice, right? Like get married, have friends, be optimistic. It is. Yeah. If you think about it, it is, it is actually very simple. And, and what's more, it's also very pleasant, you know, like I, at least personally for me, uh, meeting with friends is much more pleasurable than popping any vitamin pills or yeah. eating tons of broccoli you know you just right uh, or running a marathon or something yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah. so you know all of this and you can you know and very often you can do those things uh, you know, those traditional approaches to help like diet and exercise together with the things I'm writing about. So for example, you can go for a run with a friend instead of, you know, doing mm -hmm. it alone in a gym, or you can eat something maybe slightly less healthy, but with friends instead of doing it, you know, eating some super Kia seed and, and sort of organic heritage broccoli salad in alone in your car. And the effects will be much better for you if you actually are with other people. So, um, and I really believe it's also much more pleasant. So, yeah. uh, so, so you know, you can also look look for synergies there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like an hour walk with a friend is probably better for your health than three hours of hardcore training in a gym. 
especially if this hardcore training in a gym takes time away from your family or your friends. You know, if you're, you know, if you are forgetting your friends or your family because you are spending so much time in the gym, this is not good for your health. You know, the amount of exercise we need is you know it's not that high you know when you look at the you know maybe they're high it's high for some people but you know when we are talking about this kind of people who spend hours in the gym then this is not something that the government recommends as your you know what you should be doing you know much less is enough but if you forget about all the other stuff in your life exactly such as you know the relationships uh then the overall effect may be actually bad for your health yeah. Yeah, I see that. I, I, I mean, I know people like that who are obsessed with the gym and they spend all their time in the gym and and, and they take the supplements because those are very often supplement people as well. And they don't look healthy and they don't they, they, they almost look kind of too big and too, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like a I don't know, that seems like a losing strategy. to me. You know, you know, when you think about social isolation and loneliness, uh, for instance, we know that being socially isolated means being even three times more likely to die prematurely than people who are not socially isolated. So these are huge, huge differences. Yeah. People who are isolated, they have shorter telomeres, for instance. So those uh, protective caps at the ends of chromosomes that are implicated in aging. Uh, you know, so so this is really, really important. They even have a worse antiviral response. So if you are infected with certain viruses, your response to them will be worse if you are socially isolated, which especially you know, now during the pandemic times, yeah. maybe. Yeah, that's kind of a catch twenty two there, <laughs> with the because with, with the respiratory virus, you also could catch the virus through direct. Um, that's true. Social but you know, we can socially connect as well, and you know, try to be yeah. connected in ways other. Of course, you know, it's best to be connected in the traditional ways, but yeah. if we can't, we can also try to be as connected as as possible, even in these weird times. You know, I'm currently in a lockdown. I'm not allowed to leave my house without a permission from the government. So, oh, yeah. uh, so yeah. it's kind of why well, it's strict, but. Um, but it is still possible to connect. Yeah. It, it, do the studies show that, though? Do the studies show that face-to-face -face contact is better than uh, contact over, over you know, Zoom or the internet or... I mean, we know for sure that there is plenty of, uh, you know, re there's plenty of research showing that, for example, the Facebook friendships are not the same as real friendships, right? Sure. We know that already. Yeah. Uh, we also know, for instance, that hearing another person's voice is better for you than receiving exactly the same message over a text text message. Right. You, you don't get the same boost of oxytocin, so this laugh hormone, uh, from text message as you do from hearing exactly the same message over the phone. I haven't seen any research on Zoom. Probably it will come, you know, after all this. Sure, yeah, I'm sure those are being done right now, yeah. <laughs> and my guess would be it's still better than just voice, but it would be worse than the per person, person, personal contact. For example, because we get... Uh, boosts of those social hormones from touch, for instance, from hugging, from, sure. uh, you know, we exchange those microbes, as we said, when we are in person, you cannot do it on over Zoom. Sure, right, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, this is the second best, right? Yeah, and it all makes sense. I mean, that's how we evolved. Right? Um, so let me talk about two other things you mentioned, optimism and finding purpose. What, what do you mean by optimism? Do you mean by uh, just always... Do you mean by learning to see things on the bright side or? Yeah, that's that's usually what scientists mean when they talk about optimism. So generally being the kind of person that sees the glass as half full uh, instead of half empty. And this is something you can practice, right? This is not, of course, there is some part of how genetic 
part of how optimistic we are, but it's also something we can really develop as well and work on. And in general, optimism can add you anywhere from four to ten years of life. So this is quite considerable. Well, that is that is extremely considerable. Um, how do you? How do you? I'm not a very optimistic person. Uh, I'm quite negative. How how do I learn to be optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are there are simple ways. Basically, you know the usual approach to it is just reframing your thoughts right there are some great books on that uh you know how to learn optimism basically and uh, and this usually involves you know spotting your negative thought patterns and reframing them like looking for why do you, why are you so negative you know for example using words like never or always right you should try to avoid them and replace them with other things or blaming yourself for everything so first you spot the negative patterns then you replace them with more realistic patterns there are very simple exercises either online or some you know there are some great books uh, out there as well on how to learn optimism but it's definitely doable and worth it and is this cognitive behavioral therapy is this yes it's basically based on that okay okay that's cool i should probably look into that to be honest um all right searching for having like a higher purpose and a higher meaning in life um how do we do that because i know that i mean many people find that through work um i'd imagine you probably find it through your work i mean you're a science journalist um that's that is you know i, I I'm, I'm assuming that you get um a sense of satisfaction and a sense of you know connection to a higher purpose through your work but most people probably don't have that option in life right? most people work jobs that are not that don't really have a higher purpose that are just they're they're just for the money so how do how do people like that find a higher purpose in their lives I think there's a common misunderstanding that purpose has to be something really grand, like, you know, saving the planets or, you know, changing, I don't know, the human rights approach in some country. You know, sure. it really doesn't have to be huge. So, for example, I learned a lot about this when I was uh, researching growing young uh, in Japan. So there they talk about something called ikigai. So it's a very related concept to purpose in life. So a kind of reason for living, how they call it. And when I ask, you know, the Japanese for their ikigai, they don't say exactly, I mean, some of them will say it's, you know, preventing climate change, but most of them will say things like taking care of my grandchildren or making sure my front garden looks pretty so my neighbors enjoy it. You know, things like that, really, really small and simple things, but somehow they ha they're always kind of others oriented. So just making sure to make the life of others better in even tiny, tiny, small ways. And um, for example, in Japan, uh, where actually Ikigai, so this purpose in life, is recognized by the health ministry as one of the most important factors in health along diet and exercise. Um, they have uh, something called Silver Hair Employment Agencies. And these are employment agencies for people who are of retirement age, but don't want to retire completely, but want to still keep engaged not really for the money, but just for exactly for the ikigai mostly. Uh, and the jobs are usually part-time and very easy. And they are, for example, such as uh, helping kids cross the street on the way to school or gardening of public spaces. Mm. And this is exactly what these people say gives them the ikigai, exactly because I help children cross safely to school. It is so small, right? And yeah. You know, even in the West, there was one fascinating study on purpose in life, exactly in jobs where people would think that, you know, it's hard to find purpose. And this was a study of hospital workers, but of the cleaning stuff. And some of them considered their jobs just as, you know, 
stupid job, I'm cleaning toilets. And these people were very unhappy with it. And But there was also a part, some people considered their jobs as extremely meaningful because they saw saw it as a part of keeping patients healthy because they said, you know, if I clean the toilets properly, this will help the doctors treat better. This will keep the hospital safer, cleaner. And they really found purpose in it. So you can really find purpose in, I would say, in most jobs and most things that you do, but you really have to look for it. Yeah, we well, have to reframe, right? I mean, it's similar to the optimistic uh, one is that you have to sort of reframe it that way. Right? Instead of thinking I'm mopping up you know, floors for a living. You're thinking I'm helping save the sick, uh, mm. and it's the same. I mean, it's the same job, but it's just sort of just a different way that you you think of it. All right. Yeah. You know, you can be you can be you know a salesperson in Walmart, for instance. You know, sitting at the checkout, and you can just treat it as you know, oh, my job by just doing it for money. Or you can you know try to be nice to people and make their days better, and see your purpose as making the shopping experience nicer for people, right? And yeah. and this can be your purpose in life, and it can you know bring a smile to your face and can be good for your health as well, and makes life nicer for everyone as well. That's cool. That's really cool, yeah. Um, what about kindness? Because this this one actually surprised me. Because I, I mean, this this is totally anecdotal. But one thing that I have noticed is that a number of like uh, Nazi war criminals moved to Argentina, and they lived to be like 110 years old. And I think some <laughs> of them are still alive. I think some of those people, and the Israeli government is trying to track them down. And so I mean, this is completely anecdotal. I mean, is, but I've always yeah. used that as an example of. You know, uh, you know, the world is not a fair place, and you know, if, if there was if there was some sort of you know um, power in the universe that was fair, those people would have died a long time ago. Uh, but this is the case of a granny smoking two packs of the exactly, exactly. It's the same thing. Exactly, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's not a scientific. On average, yeah. on average, studies find that people who are kind, who are volunteering, uh, who are uh, who are doing some caregiving, just caring for other people, actually do outlive others. So the actually studies show that the the life is kind of fair. Uh, for instance, volunteers uh, have twenty nine percent lower risk of high blood glucose. They have uh, they spend thirty. 8% fewer nights in hospitals and people who who don't get involved in charity work like that. So uh, so there is some kind of fairness there and um, even kindness, you know, there was one fascinating study in which you could see the effect of kindness directly in the blood cells. Uh, so people who are randomly assigned to conduct acts of kindness, uh, they had uh, different gene expression in their leukocytes, so the white blood cells, uh, it was less tuned towards inflammation as we know inflammation, you know, in general is uh, lies at the bottom of many chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so actually, it was good to be kind, and you could see it directly in on the level of gene expression in the blood. So, for me, it's absolutely fascinating how physiological these kind of effects are. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, how how can we how can we be kind if we're not a typically kind person? Um, volunteering. Uh, treating other people more nicely or what, what does one need to do exactly to get those benefits? So, so definitely, you know, there are different paths. So both formal volunteering and informal kindness work well. So there was a recent study that exactly compared uh, doing either formal volunteering or 
doing nice things for people around you. And it, it found that they both had very similar effects. So you can choose whatever fits you better. If you have time volunteering you know, in an organized structure, it can be easier. Or maybe you just, if you don't have time, you're busy, you can uh, just try to do nice things for people around you. And uh, you know, it can be very, very simple once again. It can be as simple as making tea for your spouse or mm-hmm. uh, buying a donut for your coworker. You know, just mm-hmm. very, very simple. Keeping elevator doors, doors open for someone. These are very small things, and yet they have effects. In the study I've mentioned before, the one that's found different gene expression on the level of white blood cells, the things that people were doing were extremely simple. It was again like talking, you know, about things like keeping the elevator doors open. So very, very mm. easy things that don't require a lot of effort or time. Yeah, but it was funny though. It does require. And this is why I think your book is so important. It does require sort of an awareness, right? If you're not someone who does these things naturally, and I'm not, um, I don't make an effort to, you know, as as I should to keep up with my friends and to keep up. It is it is sort of important to be aware that these are really important things you should do in your life uh, to keep yourself healthy and to keep yourself living longer. Um, uh, I don't know if I would have necessarily thought of many of these things, especially like kindness and, and friendship as, as elements of health. But I mean, certainly we have to change our attitudes. You know, if we only put as much effort into thinking about our relationships, our involvement in the, you know, larger world, in the, our community, as much as we think about inputting data into our exercise apps sure exactly uh, you know yeah. then then would our health will definitely profit you know and it doesn't really take a lot of time and it's in general it's very pleasant as well so i did this kind of experiment on myself that i described in in growing young where uh in cooperation with scientists from king's college london i uh, measured my cortisol levels so the levels of the stress hormone for seven days uh three times a day so in the morning in the, in the afternoon and late in the evening and on three of those days um which were randomly chosen i did a lot of acts of kindness so i would sit in the morning and draft a list of what nice can I do for other people. And it's actually very pleasant to just sit down and think about it even. Um, and um, and then when I sent all my samples to, to King's College uh, and the scientists calculated, you know, how my cortisol output differed uh, between different days, they could really clearly see the days on which I did a lot of kindness because my cortisol wow. response was much healthier than all on all the other days, even though one of the kindness days was very stressful for me for completely unrelated reasons. And yet my response, my stress response was much, much healthier healthier than on all the days when I was didn't do the kindness acts I was doing. So so you could I could really see it, you know, it was because it was a sample of one, but this is confirmed yeah. by, you know, actual big studies on big large numbers of people that this is exactly what happens. But it was fascinating to see it on my own body, you know. Right, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And it, and it can help resilience. It help, helps your own resilience. Um on on that day that you had a lot of stress. It can help keep you going, and that's that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what about something that I've done in the past? And so, what about yoga and meditation? Because that's often sort of that's actually of all the things in in your book that that's the one that is most, at least in the United States, the one that is most sort of embedded itself into the medical world. I mean, yoga and meditation are now prescribed by doctors as ways of uh, reducing your stress and improving your life. 
what are, what are the evidence say for those practices? I mean, they're definitely good for you as well. But if you were to choose your friendships or yoga, then again, your friendships are more important because yeah. in terms of numbers, yoga and meditation are also around 20% of mortality risk reduction. So it's lower than friendships or even volunteering or optimism. But on the other hand, also, what especially mindfulness is good for is that it improves relationships as well. So when people practice mindfulness, they tend to also be better at relationships. They tend to also uh, be kinder. So it kind of does reinforce also the other behaviors. So it could be a good place to start as well, especially things like loving kindness meditation, right, which really focuses you on other people other than yourself. Um, so it can be a powerful tool, especially kind of entry level tool you could say sure is um i don't know how you tease this out because with all the with all this, these studies the it's so difficult to tease out causation but is does the benefit from yoga and meditation come from the social benefits or is or the benefits independent of the social benefits I mean, there is probably both. So when studies control for various factors, they find, you know, definitely the improved relationships, connections, less loneliness are an important part of doing things like mindfulness, but there are most likely also direct effects on health as well. So for example, when people do long-term meditation, you can see different brain activation patterns. Uh, they even, you know, they even blink differently. Uh, they mm. breathe differently. So so it does have direct effects on health as well. Okay. That's that's good to know. That's good to know. It's not completely a waste of time. Um, so, how have you changed? Like in the process of this book, I'm assuming that your own personal views and practices have changed since you've since you've gone through this research. Have you have you ditched the supplements? Have you? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, put less emphasis on exercising? Have you tried to make an effort to be more social and, and all of that? I mean, I definitely literally ditched my multivitamin pills. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Garbage can, uh, including my daughter's vitamins pills. And um, and uh, the only supplements we now take is the vitamin D for for the in winter season, which sure. our doctor prescribes. Yeah, that as well. uh, and uh, but uh, yes, you know, I definitely try to be more social and just to think about it also as a health behavior. Because for instance, before I did research on growing young, uh, I. I used to spend more time preparing for things like marathons, for instance. So I was planning to run a half marathon early this year. Of course, coronavirus happened. But even besides yeah. that, you know, I decided not to do it before, you know, if, even before the lockdowns, because I calculated how much time I would have to spend training. And I realized that I just don't have that time because it would have to mean that my uh, time with my husband would have to be limited because I just couldn't yeah. have enough time to both spend time with him and prepare for the health marathon. So I decided not to run and I still run, but you know, just my regular short distances four times a week, but not as much as the preparations for a health marathon would require. And, you know, in the past, when I was spending time sitting on the couch with my husband instead of running, I always felt guilty uh, somewhere deep inside that, you know, I'm not taking care of my health. I know I should be in the gym or you know, I should be doing something. But now I don't feel that way anymore. I know that actually spending the time with him is not only pleasurable and, you know, just good for my marriage, but it's actually good yeah. for my health as well. So, so definitely I changed the perspective and see those things 
as health behaviors. I also, you know, now during the pandemic times, especially, I really try to encourage my daughter, uh, who is eight years old, to to do a lot of acts of kindness as well, because not only it's a good thing to do, but exactly it boosts our immune systems, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so it's good for health. I'm trying to teach her those things also, because it's as important as eating, you know, her vegetables and fruits per day. Uh, it's also important for her to be kind and also to be conscientious, for instance, which means cleaning her room which is still a work in progress but uh <laughs> but you know those things are actual health behaviors not just kind of you know a good thing to do yeah that's awesome you mentioned parenting because i know i mean i i uh, i don't have children myself but i have you know I have a lot of nieces and nephews and cousins and stuff like that and parents and parents uh obsess over the food when especially when their child's first born the first few years of life and you know i know relatives of mine who've gotten all into the rabbit hole of all these various i don't know like different t- spirulina or stuff like that like i don't know just like all yeah, different I tried kinds that of too. <laughs> yeah yeah like all these different like things and i even when that was happening and, and my little cousins were i was thinking like it probably doesn't make that too big of a difference like you could probably just make them applesauce it's probably the same thing like <laughs> and i think yep. that's that's probably true that's probably what, what, what the research shows that it's it, you know it's not and and focusing on on like you mentioned, like focusing on building these sorts of behaviors in children, when you know, especially when they're young and they're impressionable and they can build positive habits, probably would do more for their health uh, long term than feeding them specific types of you know, weird health foods and... I mean, I was definitely down this rabbit hole myself when my daughter was born. You know, we lived, when she was very small, we lived in the U.S. and very close to a Whole Foods store. Oh, yeah. And I spent far too much money and time in the store, I admit. And, uh, and uh, yes, and then, you know, I bought all this Kia seeds and goji berries and I put turmeric into all her uh, foods almost. And um and, you know, and then I wrote Growing Young, I realized that this is not really the way to go. As you said yourself, you know, carrots and apples are really perfectly fine. And uh, it's probably much more important, the atmosphere at the table. So whether the parents are smiling and happy or the atmosphere is stressed because the child doesn't work to eat her spirulina. So, you know. So, oh, yeah. Uh, so there are other things that matter much more exactly you know the teaching your child optimism teaching your child uh how to have good relationships with others you know giving good example with you know with your marriage or your relationship uh with your significant other these are really important things for your child's health as well and there is research showing that you know that for example when children acquire good social skills early on in their lives their health benefits when they're adults so so it's really really important to look at those those things at least as much as it, on, on we look on diet yeah absolutely that's great that's a great message um yeah you mentioned eating at the table that's one thing i've noticed too that americans tend to eat alone a lot and foreigners think it's really weird um because uh, foreigners, I mean, most foreign, most foreign countries that I've been to, people tend to eat together. And if you don't eat together, it, it, people think it's very strange. Um, there must be benefits to that, right? I mean, there must be benefits to to always trying, always, always making it a point to eat with someone and to share that experience together uh, rather mm-hmm. than just like having, I mean, Americans eat in their cars, I mean, like we go yeah. to, we literally go to McDonald's and like we just eat in our cars, which is like so strange to other people. But yeah, fo- but focusing more on eating with people rather than what precisely you're eating. 
I mean, definitely, you know, after 12 years living in France, I don't, I would never eat on the street again. I kind of, you know, I used to, when I lived in Canada, I used to, you know, just eat my sandwich walking down the street yeah. or in my car or on a bus yeah. stop, you know, wherever, right? You can yeah. just eat myself. It's completely fine. But in France, it's just such a faux pas. You, know, just, you just don't do that. People would like, look at you like you're crazy or something. So you really are supposed to sit at the table and eat with other people. And, you know, the, the numbers reflect that, like, you know, most French people actually do eat dinner every day with other people at the table. So, um, and, uh, and, you know, when we talk about things like the Mediterranean diet, for example, we always try to analyze how much wine they are drinking, you know, what kind of olive oil they use or how many tomatoes they eat per day or whatever. Right. Whereas actually the big part of the Mediterranean diet is not just what they eat, but how they eat. And, you know, these kind of nations that follow Mediterranean diet, they tend to eat with other people, you know, the Spanish, the Italians, the French, they eat and talk and they eat for a long time together with others. It's a big thing here, right? And uh, so I really should think that we also should look at this, at the Mediterranean diet also as a social thing, not just as what kind of nutrients it contains. Sure, yeah, and it's probably difficult to tease, to tease out um, those variables in studies. Uh, you know, if you do a study on um, the Mediterranean diet in the Mediterranean, you're getting both effects, right? You're getting the the nutritional effect, but then you're also getting the social effect. Um, yeah. And so. I, I mean, we know, for example, you know, there was this, uh, there was this, how important the social part is, is that uh, in the U.S. there was this town called the Rosetto. Um, it was in the 60s, and um, the in the 60s that the scientists really started paying attention to it because this town was very special because mortality rates, they were about 30 to 35% lower than in all the surrounding areas. And especially nobody was having heart attacks there. It was really, really weird. And at first, exactly, they thought it was the diet, um, but uh, because the place was settled by um, immigrants from Italy, uh, but it wasn't the diet because they actually completely abandoned their diets when they moved to US they were eating very greasy and smoking a lot eating a lot of salt like really poor diet uh, it was not their genes either it was controlled for so what the scientists finally discovered it was exactly the social part so people in Rosetto they were it's a, it's a town in Pennsylvania they were very very social they were always getting together they were having big parties where everybody was invited where they were eating together exactly uh, they belonged to a lot of organizations uh, they 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 were constantly visiting their neighbors and um, and but the scientists also predicted that if there are people in Rosetto were to abandon their ways, if they were to change, the effects would disappear. And unfortunately, this is what happens. So the younger generations, uh, they started following more of the American dream. So, you know, buying bigger cars, moving to the suburbs, being, buying, you know, working long time. And uh, they stopped being so social. So by the late 70s, um, this health effects have completely disappeared and um, Rosetto became just a town like any other. Uh, but to these days, you know, scientists talk of this kind of Rosetto effect as the effect that social lives can have on our health, even even if we eat poor diets. Sure, that's fascinating because um, that town uh, was a community, right? So it had, there was a community and it had a particular way of living and if you were born into that town at that time, you just followed what the community was doing and what they were doing was healthy. And, but if you were born at a later time and you followed what the community was doing 
uh, and what the community are doing was not healthy, right? You know, the younger generation that you mentioned. So, I mean, most of us now, we live in uh, communities where what we're doing is unhealthy, right? We're not socializing as much. So how do we, like, do we have to change the whole culture in order to get these benefits? Or can we as individuals decide, no, I'm going to be more social. I'm going to, I mean, can we do that without having a, a social structure around us that's designed for that? I mean, it's definitely more difficult if you live in the suburbs than if you live in a tiny little French village. So, you know, I moved, I used to live in the suburbs in, in Canada and definitely the community just wasn't the same as it is here. I live in a small French village right now and it's just much easier here because people are already doing it. People are meeting together all the time, neighbors, organizing stuff, you know, just having uh, apero in their backyards oh, sure. you know it's 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 of course not now but you know yeah, in, yeah. outside the pandemic but um it's much easier that's certain but at the same time i really still believe that we can look to to create our own little communities you know as much as we can uh there are lots of great movements uh in north america as well where people are trying to do things like place making you know so transforming their communities to be more inclusive, opening some kind of neighborhood gardens. Or, you know, I talked to someone who recently told me that they sw stopped sitting in their backyard, they moved to their front yard. So they moved their garden furniture <laughs> to their front yard, and now they're sitting in their front yard. And they said, you can't believe how much our social lives have improved because now people stop, they start That's chatting, funny. and we started knowing our neighbors, and it's so much better, right? So, and it's such a small change. You just move your, you know, your, your, your garden furniture from the back to the front, right? And it changes everything. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that incidental contact is so important, and we do lose that a lot in, in North America where we're in our cars for most most of the time uh, when we're commuting to and from work. I mean, I know I, I had lived in Europe as well and I lived in a, uh, not, a, not quite a small town, but a mid-sized town, Angers in France. And I would run into people I knew on the street, which was crazy, which is an experience I never had before. I would literally mm. be walking to the grocery store and I would see somebody that I knew which was like, oh, wow, hey, hi, how are you? And then you catch up with them. You know, you're like, oh yeah, how's it, how's this going? Oh yeah, how's this doing? And then... And so, I mean, I think you do, you, do, you do need to have to make a special effort in places where that sort of just incidental contact is harder, right? Where you have to drive and you have to get, instead of being able to walk and you don't have a strong sense of community and things like that. But, but you're saying you think it is possible. I mean, I do believe it's possible, you know, if if there is a local store, you can patronize instead of going to some giant Walmart, it's definitely oh, better sorry. also for your health, you know, it may be, for example, slightly more expensive, but yeah. consider the extra expense of something you're doing for your health, you know, we spend so much money on supplements, why shouldn't you spend a little bit more money on shopping in a local grocery store that's, uh, you know, where you can exactly meet your neighbors, you know, don't know the owner and get all these health benefits from being integrated in the community instead of the you know, completely anonymous Walmart when, you know, you don't know anybody and nobody cares about you. Sure, yeah, or maybe even uh, joining a co-op and, and getting involved in sort of uh, maybe volunteering at the grocery store, you know, things like like uh, you can kind of find finding some sort of community um, that you can be a part of somehow, yeah. yeah. Um, did you look at religion at all? Does religion have a protective effect on longevity? I mean, I didn't look very deeply into it, uh, but 
but from what I know is that religion has some protective effects, but most likely they stem from the community uh, feeling that it provides you, right? People who belong in a church, they have a very strong social group into which they belong. So they get the support, they get the community, right? So if you are not religious, you could replace it with something else. It can be, you know, some kind of civil organization. It can be a library, book club, whatever, right? But it's yeah. it's this kind of feeling of support, of belonging somewhere, belong with, with other people who have similar uh, views than you and also you know probably religion also gives people more of a purpose in life and meaning and so but these things can be found in non-religious ways as well yeah so, so it's not god rewarding you for all his all those prayers <laughs> most likely not <laughs> okay. but uh, okay. yeah okay cool um all right 